It's a real honor to be invited back to speak a second time. I, I appreciate it and enjoy it. I've titled my talk, Buddhist Ways to Catch Love. And I want to start by reading you a poem called Catch Love. Five minutes shared indoors may do it. No face mask can stop it since it is transmitted through the eyes, the heart, the soul. Extremely contagious love is. You can't inoculate against it. You can catch it anywhere, anytime, from anyone. And it is heedless of lockdowns. It was not created in a lab, nor found in a village market. It cannot be traced back in time. But once you catch it, the onset of symptoms is immediate. Warmth in the heart tolerance in the mind, softness in the body, brilliance in the soul. It can be treated with closeness and intimacy, but will unfailingly lead to the same prognosis, death of all that is not itself. In these times of pandemic, we are familiar with ways to catch COVID. Unmask, don't vaccinate, go to indoor gatherings or tightly packed outdoor events with others who don't mask or vax. The poem I read tells us how important and easy it can be to catch an antidote to the fear and isolation that COVID has brought us. And in reading this poem, it made me consider what Buddhism says about catching or nurturing love and how I have experienced it in my life. The poem was written by Virginia Francisco, a Spanish poet and educator. I haven't been able to find out anything more about her. It was sent to me by a participant in a five-day retreat I attended this November at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies. Um, I started a year-long program called Writing Liberation, the Buddhist Practice of Spiritual Autobiography, taught by Lama Liz Munson, who is both an ordained Buddhist Lama and she holds an MFA, Master of Fine Arts as well. So she's sharing her wisdom about the intersection of writing and practice with 27 of us, ranging in age from the 30s to the 80s. I feel really fortunate to be a participant in that course. I had many reasons for wanting to participate. At the age of 75, I'm distinctly aware of the approaching limits in my ability to be a contributing member of society. While some people my age will have many years left to be high functioning, a portion of us will not. Of course, that's true at any age, but once you make it to my age, this reality is even more present. Among my reasons for taking the course were to help me get clear about my priorities for this potentially final chapter of my productive life, regardless of how long it lasts. To help me clarify and release elements of my past that nibble at my mind, making full presence a challenge at times. And to continue my lifelong effort to be a more compassionate, loving person, leaving behind more of the judging, comparing, and critical mind that at times seems inherent in my DNA. 
I figured at the very least, this course would give me great fodder for Dharma talks, and receiving the poem was but the first example of this. So let's turn to the title of the talk again, Buddhist Ways to Catch Love. The ways I will mention are not sourced only from Buddhism, um, that many of the ideas or practices I mention are taught in most, if not all, of the world's religions, though the language describing them may be different. So how does Buddhist practice help me catch and spread love? First, it encourages and provides the space for me to plumb the depths of my own heart, so I experience directly the barriers to feeling and sharing love. I understand how deeply I long for it and realize how powerful it is when I am able to share it genuinely. My introduction to practice through Soto Zen was particularly effective in this inward part of my journey because it provided a highly disciplined way to just sit for many hours, turning my attention away from outward distractions to what I was truly thinking and feeling. At the same time, I developed deep unspoken connections with those I sat next to in the Zendo, especially during seven-day sessions, where I sat for 10 or more 40-minute periods a day. Sessions gave me plenty of time to get sick of the usual ruminations in my mind and then move beyond them to life's essences. Also helpful were the terrific Dharma talks, as well as Dokasans providing one-to-one -one interactions with Katagiri Roshi. And while we don't get the same full impact from sitting right next to people when we have to do it on Zoom, I think there is still some of that element of being present with people who are all trying to move forward on the same path. During the time that I was in Minnesota, uh, one of the Buddhist teachers that Katagiri Roshi referred to most often was Dogen, the Japanese Buddhist priest, writer, poet, philosopher, and founder of the Soto School of Zen in Japan. He lived in the 1200s, and his most famous work is the Shobogenzo. One of his enduring teachings is, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. I had many experiences over the years of dropping away the critical barriers I impose between myself and others. I came to appreciate people I ordinarily didn't like simply because they were so dedicated to their practice and supported my practice by sitting next to me when I was struggling. They also showed their own vulnerabilities and struggles through such minuscule clues as size while sitting. Additionally, they dedicated themselves to helping MZMC thrive. To find that I could truly respect and care for even people that I didn't like was an eye-opener to me. 
In my early practice in San Francisco, starting about 48 years ago, prior to my seven years in Minnesota, and then for 30 years more in Rochester, I sat facing a blank wall with my hands in a mudra at my hara or center just below my belly button. The breath was my focus, just sitting, in contrast to Rinzai Zen's use of koans. Additionally, sitting without moving is highly valued in Zen practice and done even to the point of great physical suffering to avoid distracting others nearby. For me, this was a gift because I am generally on high alert around others and easily distracted. And having to sit with pain taught me how to use my breath in ways that I didn't really know before that. The physical arrangement of Zen focused my practice inward, decreasing outward distractions and helping me to plumb my own depths and the depths of the universe. Then after coming to Dharma Refuge about eight years ago, Tibetan practice provided an additional opening to the rest of the universe. In Tibetan Buddhism, I found a greater emphasis on compassion and altruism, although certainly knowing the self is also essential. When I joined Dharma Refuge, I found it extremely challenging to sit in rows behind others with all sorts of visual distractions in front of me after 40 years of facing that wonderful blank wall. I kept my hands in the familiar mudra, usually sat in the front row so that no one was in front of me, and still struggled if people near or in front of me were wiggle worms. Even now is my first automatic response at times if there is something going on around me sounds or movement that make it harder for me to focus, because even without them, focusing can be hard. Over time, however, influenced by Dharma talks and Buddhist readings about compassion, and trying, often unsuccessfully, to open up my mind to simple presence without a focus, I began to experiment with a different approach. I decided that if I wanted to develop greater compassion and full presence, I have to not rely on external circumstances making it easy for me to do that. I remind myself that some people have spent many years meditating in prisons, which are extremely noisy 24-7. So while I do my best to establish a peaceful place and time for sitting, when something interrupts, I try to open up my practice and accept it, breathe through the irritation that arises, and find a place of compassion, both for myself and the source of distraction. This is a current effort for me, and I am only sometimes successful. In addition, I experiment with shifting the positions of my hands and arms, placing my hands on my thighs, which is more typical in Tibetan practice. I sensed that this would open my heart to the rest of the universe at a deeper level. And now I alternate between the two positions based on intuition about what fits best at the moment. I still need and greatly appreciate opportunities to focus inward more easily and fully. For example, in facing the wall at home sometimes rather than facing forward with others or facing the computer and having a quiet atmosphere around me. 
But when that is not possible, I bring a different attitude. Early in my first retreat with Liz Munson last November, she specifically asked us not to close our eyes even when she was leading us in a guided meditation. She noted that one purpose of practice is to learn to use our minds and bodies to create a peaceful, loving, and full presence so that we are not dependent upon outer circumstances. I think this is an essence of practice for the long haul, recognizing that we have the ability to do just that, to use our minds and bodies in any circumstance to create a peaceful, loving, and full presence so that we are not dependent upon outer circumstances. Then we can bring that calm presence to benefit the outer world. We have learned a lot or heard a lot about long haul COVID. Now let's focus more on cultivating long haul calm presence, compassion, and love. Thich Nhat Hanh was one of the most effective people I have ever encountered in working to create long haul calm and compassion. I have to tell a couple of stories about him in order to honor his death a week ago and the impact he has had on people around the world. Tai saw the route to the resolution of conflict as a process. It includes experiencing, accepting, letting go of, and moving beyond one's own suffering to a place of calm, compassion, and love. Then seeing deeply the suffering of others, even those who are perpetrators of great harm. And finally, acting from the compassion and wisdom that naturally arise. He didn't deny the presence or truth of anger, but he understood deeply ways to transform it into productive action so that we are more effective in addressing root causes. I used his beginning a new process to heal many decades of challenges with a very close relative about 20 years ago. After just one weekend, with help from a therapist who worked through this beginning a new process, the relative and I came to understandings and renewal of love in our relationship that has lasted almost 20 years. Details of that process are available on the Plum Village website for any of you that are interested. It can be used with individuals and within communities and was a core process used by the Plum Village community on a weekly basis. Last month, Tibetan teacher Anam Thupten Rinpoche, who um, is centered in California, but also teaches around the world, spoke in a Dharma talk about, about what Tibetans call the kleshas, which are greed, hatred, and ignorance. They are mental states that cloud the mind and manifest in unwholesome actions. All are barriers to open-hearted loving. Rinpoche noted that ignorance is the biggest, the underlying root. Ignorance is forgetting who we are, interdependent beings. 
not seeing reality as it is, believing we are separate and distinct. Our special assignment, let go of ignorance and we will become wiser and kinder. Ignorance is a veil preventing us from seeing beauty. I would say it also prevents us from seeing each other's suffering, the essential step in bringing us to true compassion. Rinpoche noted that it is important to be aware of others' suffering. And I find that doing this with someone who is a challenge for me brings forth greater feelings of compassion in my heart. I had some very challenging interactions just earlier this month uh, with a person here in Rochester who I have been very close to, I have worked very closely with, I have devoted a significant part of my life to being supportive of, um, especially in a, a couple of weeks ago, we had a very tough conversation and what I found that I needed to do, because my mind was immediately going to who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. You know, as humans, we automatically like to say in situations where there are challenges, I'm the good guy, that's the bad guy. And then we kind of come from that frame of mind. I had to continually remind myself, there are no bad guys in this conversation, that is using the ad, a, an approach coming from ignorance to try and figure out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy and I'm the good guy. So I kept focusing on there are no bad guys in this conversation. This person is suffering deeply and what this person has done that has caused pain for me has come out of that suffering. And by continually bringing myself back to that approach, I was able to speak from a place of compassion. And I think it helped move the conversation to a much better place. And we were actually able to come to a place, I think, of much care and compassion and love for each other. I have seen that work in other circumstances over this past month, where I see people coming from great suffering, whether it be because of the stresses of COVID or whatever. And I have to keep removing that veil of ignorance that I carry, understand their suffering and come to them from a place of compassion. And I've just had transformative conversations with people. So we need to lift the veil of ignorance so we can be the one who whether we're on Zoom, in our home, at work, or meandering through the day somewhere else, we transmit love through our heart, through our soul, through our eyes, through our lips, and through our actions. We can infect others we encounter with love, helping to lift the world up. In the late 1990s, I had a conversation with Dorothy Johnson. She was then the CEO of the Michigan Council on Foundations, one of the best statewide associations of grant makers in the country. At the time, I was executive director of perhaps the smallest one, the Rochester, New York Grant Makers Forum. She was one of my mentors. She advised her state's governor, mingled with other elected representatives in her state, 
provided input to both the Bush and Clinton administrations on philanthropy. And had she run for president of the US, I would have voted and campaigned for her. She's just an amazing human being. She was also a member of the board of directors for the Kellogg Foundation, one of the most prestigious in our country. And this took her all over the US and the world to learn about pressing needs and effective philanthropic strategies so that the foundation's US and international giving programs could be as impactful as possible. One time Dottie spoke about visiting the favelas in Brazil and witnessing the dismal life that residents experienced. I remember asking her how she was almost always so upbeat and open-hearted when she saw so deeply into the miseries and the hurtful behaviors of the human species, how she was able to turn that into meaningful, impactful action without getting burned out herself. Her response was to do what you can far away, but make sure you are also doing something concrete nearby that enables you to touch and see the difference you can make. Start in your own backyard. Rather than spending too much time moaning and groaning about the horrible state of the world, pick one place you think you can make a difference and get busy doing it, no matter how simple or unimportant it seems. This strategy has enabled my husband and I to do amazingly well during these past two years of COVID. A retired Xerox exec, Mike helps me maintain the free food stand in front of our house. He drives an elderly, almost blind musician and an elderly, very ill woman, plus her caregiver son to appointments, food shopping and more. He also helped the musician access care and surgery for his eyes that is maintaining the little vision he has. And just this morning, the musician asked for a ride to pick up food because it's too icy for him to walk. So Mike has another opportunity to be of service and to feel joy. On the harder side, with fewer immediate positive outcomes and the need for a long haul look is his constant work on behalf of racial equity and social justice throughout our community working on prison and bail reform with a group of black spiritual leaders and others in our community. This work can be frustrating and leads to joyful outcomes less often, but when the victories come, they're so rewarding for him. The poem I read gives us one small but huge step we can take, figuring out how to live our lives so that at least some of the time we can be the person who is ground zero for love, spreading an especially catchy variant with tons of mutations that makes it so powerful, no contradicting force will be able to block it from getting through. Even your eyes and a quick hello spoken through a mask can spread this powerful type of love. I have seen it spread at my local YMCA's inner city sites, a bastion of diversity in class, skin color, age, and ability. When one person who may be sitting in a whirlpool smiles and says hello, or how's it going as a new person enters, you can feel the entire atmosphere lift. 
we all become friends instead of strangers. Then when anyone leaves, they wish the others well. And hopefully that friendliness passes on in the dressing room and then into their lives outside the Y. I certainly pass it along, and the Y has become one of my favorite places in Rochester. If you struggle with this, I encourage you to read some of Thich Nhat Hanh and also Tibetan Buddhist Matu Ricard's Words of Wisdom. Between them, their straightforward teachings create a balance of grounding yourself so that you can be the peace and love you seek to see in the world and then spreading it to others through acts of altruism. You are giving from the heart and bringing moments of love and joy to others that then kick back to flood you with even more joy. Matu Ricard's blog spoke to this last month and I wanna read you a couple of excerpts. He said, the end of year celebrations are an opportunity to strengthen our bonds with loved ones, with our friends, but also to extend this love to all beings. We need to reconsider how we behave with our close ones, our friends and the world at large. Compassion is an essential quality for creating bonds. As my friend Christophe André says, recycling love is a beautiful act of transmission. Let me repeat that phrase. Recycling love is a beautiful act of transmission. Frank Ostaseski, another Buddhist teacher, is co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project and Meta Institute. He gives us a related directive. Welcome everything, push away nothing. Dharma practice is not an escape. It involves having the courage and will to face the discomfort and suffering of, of the first noble truth. Life is suffering. Ignoring that truth and pretending that whatever happens is fine is simply spiritual bypass. It doesn't work to create a grounded sense of peace and compassion. Life does contain suffering, but it also contains healthy ways to move into and beyond suffering towards compassion and love. And I think that trying our best to figure out how to do this is one of our primary tasks on earth. One very simple way to bring more of this alive in our lives is the very first meditation that is taught in sustainable compassion training, a secular approach to some of the core teachings in Buddhism. Your teacher, Tim Burkett, will be teaching some of these uh, sustainable compassion meditations during a Saturday afternoon Zoom workshop on February 26, titled Practices to Sustain Emotional and Spiritual Balance. That might be of interest to some of you. I really encourage you to plug into that retreat. The first meditation asks us to settle into our seats, focus on our body, then our breath, and then create a scene in our minds of something that creates feelings of being cared for, safe, warm, and loved. This enables us to identify and spend time with stimuli that create the feeling of being deeply loved and cared for. One scene arose for me with Kuan Yin, 
the Bodhisattva of Compassion in the foreground. Here she is, for those of you that may not have seen her. She sits on my altar here at home. So in my vision, she is in the foreground and a forest surrounds her. In my imagine, I can feel and see the trees and Kuan Yin sending me golden rays of light filled with nurturing oxygen along with great love and warmth. I breathe these golden rays in deeply and then I breathe out, breathe out green rays of carbon and love that nourish the forest and Kuan Yin in return. Doing this for a few minutes can transform how I feel. I can sense the endorphins just flooding my brain and my body. For those of you who are not physiologically, physiology nerds like me, endorphins are part of the chemical basis for many of our positive feelings, including love. Even just turning the corners of your mouth up into a smile can cause endorphins to be relieved. I'm sorry, to be released, whether or not you are feeling happy when you first do it. This is an automatic physiological response when you turn the corners of your mouth up. It is a simple practice that both Thich Nhat Hanh and An Thupten Rinpoche have taught as part of settling in when you begin a meditation period. And so I try to remind myself when I am settling in very first thing, getting in touch with my body and turning the corners of my mouth up. I also want to mention that Krista Tippett hosted an episode of On Being, her program on Sunday mornings, at least that's when it airs here in Rochester, on December 5th, that was titled The Future of Well-Being. Her guests were Dr. Vivek Murthy, our current U.S. Surgeon General, and Richard Davidson, a groundbreaking neuroscientist. They spoke about exactly what I've been talking about this morning. I encourage you to listen to that podcast or to read the transcript. Both are readily available if you go to onbeing.org forward slash programs. Again, it was on December 5th and it was titled The Future of Well-Being. Additionally, the program that was broadcast this morning featured excerpts from a past interview with Thich Nhat Hanh and others speaking about him. You can find that as a podcast as well, and it was really wonderful. So I want to end the formal part of my talk by reading again the poem that I started us with, and then we can open it up to comments and questions, which I'd be delighted to listen to and respond to. So catch love. Five minutes shared indoors may do it. No face mask can stop it since it is transmitted through the eyes, the heart, the soul. Extremely contagious love is. You can't inoculate against it. You can catch it anywhere, anytime, from anyone, and it is heedless of lockdowns. It was not created in a lab, nor found in a village market, it cannot be traced back in time, but once you catch it, the onset of symptoms is immediate. Warmth in the heart, tolerance in the mind, 
softness in the body, brilliance in the soul. It can be treated with closeness and intimacy, but will unfailingly lead to the same prognosis, death of all that is not itself. So thank you very much. And uh, if anybody has any questions or comments, we would love to hear them. Jane, this is Judy Mellon. Uh, I used to be Judy Artino. Hi, Judy. Of course, Hi, I recognize you. Yeah. What a wonderful talk. Thank you. Uh, just what a wonderful poem. And just, uh, I hope that we can use whatever it is we are to stay connected to each other and help each other. I, I feel uh, often um, difficulty focusing these days or um, finding a meaning. And I'm very grateful for practice every day that just plops me down and, and gets me started. So thank you. Hey, Jane, this is Phil Johnson. Hi, Phil. Hi, thank you so much for your talk. It was perfectly timed for me. And I, I have a question for you. Um, you know, not knowing what everybody goes through, um, you know, everybody has their, has their own goings on. And, and as we try to expose folks to this, to this kind of love and compassion, um, do you take, um, does, do you change your, your, your amount of touch or, or, or how do you, um, how would you adjust if perhaps you're working with somebody who might have a, who might have some particular traumas um, that would, I don't know, maybe change your parameters a little bit. Could you, could you speak a little bit about, you know, helping uh, or working with people who have um, various levels of trauma? Sure. Um, so keep in mind, I'm not a therapist. Um, I'm a Buddhist practitioner <laughs> Um, so, uh, first of all, I would really encourage them to be in therapy if they're not. Um, I, I think, um, for so many people, including me, uh, therapy is a really necessary component if you've had trauma in your life. So that would be the number one thing. And, and, and in fact, I, I serve as a practice guide. So people need to understand I'm not an ordained Buddhist teacher. Um, I've been practicing a long time and it's a core part of my life and I'm happy to share my knowledge, um, and whatever's been helpful to me with others, but I'm not like Tim or Ted or something like that. So as a practice guide here, um, I do one-on-one -on -one talks with folks and whenever I hear someone with unresolved trauma, I urge them to do some therapy around it. And um, we're fortunate enough here to have some resources that even people that can't afford to be in therapy, don't have insurance, whatever, they can go for some free therapy with some good people. Um, knowing that Minnesota is in the forefront of the therapy world, I'm assuming the same thing is true there. If I have um, friends, or, you know, where they're asking me to be helpful in some ways, and they are in therapy, and they're doing that work. Um, I just really try to be a good listener. I try to help encourage them to look for the sources of joy in their life. I, 
I try to help them think about what they're really good at and what brings them joy in every moment and make sure that every day they're plugging in some of that so that they get those endorphins flooding them. Now, for me, one of the things that has been most helpful with that besides meditation is exercise. So if someone with trauma is not doing any exercise, boy, you know, if it's a friend, let's go for a walk or go to the Y or, you know, do whatever you can to get a little bit of exercise in your life. Um, So those are some of the most immediate and simplest things that I would do. But I think just being a good friend who can listen and, and help that person find sources of joy and love and connection, I think are very helpful. Thank you. I'm really glad I asked. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. It's uh, Meredith here. I really appreciated uh, your talk. I'm especially delighted and tickled by the, uh, the, the, uh, the analogies with COVID and the mutations and, you know, being contagious because somehow that really struck me it brings some levity somehow into the situation that we're in and the examples you gave of the type of work your husband is doing um, and you're doing um, is, is really special. And it's, it's, it's helpful for me to put, you know, it's really easy to kind of go into a hole right now, I think, and to kind of put, yes, we have this pandemic going on on the table, but we also have all these other things going on and they're, equally as powerful, right? You talk about mutations and stuff was really a beautiful way of presenting it. And, and um, I'm going to carry that with me. So thank you. I appreciate it. You know, I, I have to share, I think at my last talk, I briefly mentioned the free food stand that, that we had started here. That is the perfect example of a totally unexpected source of unbelievable moments of joy. I mean, talk about endorphins daily. I mean, we go out to it about four times a day. It's right in our front yard. And so we're constantly putting food in or if somebody brings a ton, we're bringing it out. Or, you know, like now we're below freezing for about a month in a row. And so people will bring stuff that shouldn't be out in freezing. So I'll bring that in and take something out. And we get in these conversations with people and it's like, you know, four or five times a day, good feelings, you know? I mean, and, and I didn't anticipate that at all. I just thought, God, there's so many hungry people around here. Um, we can do it. Let's do it. So there are these simple, simple things that you can do that almost everybody can do. If you are stuck in your house, well, actually, I'll give you this example. A woman I knew who was in a body cast from surgeries, there was uh, just a wonderful woman couldn't move, was stuck in bed for six six weeks, I think, because of the body cast. She used the phone. She had one hand she could use. She used the phone, and I forget who she hooked up with, but she talked to people who were at home alone. And that's what she did for those six weeks that she was in that body cast. There's always something you can do, no matter how, you know, or if, if, if you have caregivers and you're in a horrible situation, you can smile at your caregivers and bring joy to them instead of grouching at them. So there's always something that you could do. Um, I think another example, and this is a Thich Nhat Hanh story, um, Steve Hagen, who has 
his own community in Minnesota now was a priest at Zen Center when I was there. And um, after Thich Nhat Hanh's visit to Zen Center, he and I both went to Plum Village together and spent about 10 days. Now, at the time, I didn't know it, but with hindsight, I realized I was in the middle of a huge depressive incident, period, while I was at Plum Village. And it really robbed me in many ways of the ability to just fully be present and, and, and enjoy being there. I was just struggling with a lot of tough feelings. And the, the one thing that brought me real moments of true joy was walking in the French countryside. I made sure to do that every day. And about halfway through the visit, I went in for a dokusan with Thich Nhat Hanh. That was back in the time when just an ordinary person like me could actually spend one-on-one -on -one time with him. Um, this was, I think it was about 40 years ago. It was in uh, 82, 83. And um, so I told him the struggles that I was having. And he asked me what brought me joy while I was there. And I said to him, just walking by myself in the French countryside, he said, do it more. And so I did. But unfortunately, two days later, I I went on such a long walk that I got a horrible blister on one heel. And then I had to even not do as much walking. I had to just figure it out without as much walking. But that teaching just stayed with me. It really did, you know, find something that brings you joy and then pass that joy on to others. Other questions or comments? Hi, Jane, this is Carrie. Hi. I so appreciate your talk. I, I appreciated when you spoke last time you came to the Zen Center. Um, what I appreciate is that um, your, um, your vulnerability around being a woman and being older and, and speaking to that. And as I, as I get older each year uh, and as a woman, I, I think about how my, um, my purpose in regards to society changes and how society looks at me mm -hmm. um, and how I will am and will disappear more and more and how my thoughts and my ideas and my contribution may be viewed as less than um, and yet this practice right our practice to like you said, to catch love, to open up to those spaces within us, to be able to share whatever we can um, from that space of love, from that um, heart center, right? From that place is something that we can continue to do throughout our lives to the best of our bodies and our minds abilities. Um, I recently connected with uh, an aunt who is in her eighties, who lives in Northern Minnesota and, I, I wrote to her and I sent pictures of, of my life as it is now because she's not on any kind of technology. Um, she wrote back so appreciative and, and you know, wrote back as an 80 year old woman who's experiencing um, physical health challenges would about her doctor's appointments, about the snow, about, um, you know, the, the housing she lives in now and the housing she misses that was the big home on the lake that she used to have. Um, it just reminds me to, to know that um, moments in my body are, are changing, are going to change and I can't control that. 
Yeah, actually, I'm right in the middle of that. I've had uh, cataract surgery on one eye. Next surgery is next week. Nine appointments over the course of a couple of, of months, nine doctor's appointments. And uh, I'm thinking, oh, man, this is the start. <laughs> so I know exactly what you're talking about. But what I've tried to do with each appointment is do something positive or say something positive to each healthcare provider. Um, we have a pulmonologist who lives next door to us who this last two years has been unbelievable. He's got three young kids, a wife with lupus. They are lovely people, but it's been very, very difficult for them. Uh, Dave has these weeks when he's on the ICU, I think, you know, like probably 18 hour days, five days straight. And so I am very, very aware of the pressures that any healthcare provider, whether you're, you know, at ground zero for COVID, which he is, or whether you're at the eye doctor's office and you're understaffed. And so what I find is going to any of those appointments, there's always something that I can say, like, how you doing? Has this been a tough time that just can bring some warmth to their heart and helps them to feel seen. And it's actually transformed a couple of conversations for me uh, with one guy who wasn't wearing his mask properly and, you know, potential for a, for a tough situation, but it ended up being a very positive situation. So we always have these moments to just connect with someone on a heart level, acknowledge their suffering, and they feel heard and seen and it brings joy to them, and then that brings joy to you. Thank you. Anybody else? Well, it, it's, it's such an honor to um, be able to speak with you all and to see some of my old friends, and I really want to encourage you to do that little mini retreat with Tim. Um, sustainable compassion training is simple, it's unbelievable. Um, I use it probably practically daily. We have several people here who are actually becoming experts at it so that they can share it with other people as well. So uh, try out Tim's session. And there's a lot online about it too that I'm sure Tim will steer you to.